But before we get into preaching God's word this weekend, I want to take some time for us just to pray God's word together. Uh, Last weekend, I told you that um, Psalm 67 is a psalm that God has put on my heart to pray very fervently about our church and to pray about my family and my own life. Psalm 67 tells us that when God blesses a people, when God blesses his people, whether it's a church or whether it is a family or just you as an individual, whenever he prospers you, he always does so with the salvation of the nations in mind. And uh, you know, this weekend we have hundreds of our members scattered around the globe in places preaching the gospel where Jesus is not known. Uh, 240 some of our members live permanently overseas in a capacity in one of our church planning teams. And in addition to that, we got all kinds of people that are out on short-term mission trips. We have a bunch that are leaving tomorrow to go um, on mission trips around the world. And so I just want us to to pray together for them. Uh, Here's how I want us to do it. Um, We're gonna pray from Psalm 67. Uh, I'm gonna actually walk you through um, this and just, I'm gonna read it over you. And then um, I'm gonna have us pray together in response at all of our canvases. So why don't you stand to your feet, if you would, at all of our locations. Um, as you're doing that, here's what I want you to keep in mind. You know, we are, are one church. We meet in 11 different locations in the triangle each weekend. Uh, and uh, sometimes I can feel like we're spread all over the place, but we still are one congregation coming together. So I want you just to be aware at whatever campus you're at, that when you're praying right now, you're actually joining people um, from Mebane to uh, the two prison campuses we have uh, to Chapel Hill and, and Blue Ridge Campus and North Durham and, and Apex and everywhere in between, all the, the different campuses of the Summit Church. Um, we're praying together as one body. Psalm 67, let me read this over you and then I'll lead you in the response that I want us to pray um, back to God. May God be gracious to us, the psalmist says, and bless us. May he make his face to shine upon us so that your way might be known on earth and your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations rejoice and shout for joy, for you judge the peoples with fairness and you lead the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has produced its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Now, here's what I want us to pray together in response. And it's okay for you to keep your eyes open during this prayer because I want us to read it back to God together. Okay, read it, but you're praying it to God. Here we go. God, our Father, we acknowledge that we are your chosen people, blessed by you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We know that we do not deserve this, but we receive it and we are grateful. We acknowledge that you chose us with the blessing of the nations in mind. We accept this great commission and the responsibilities that go with it. So we ask you now to bless our church, our small groups, and our families, to prosper us in every way and to make your face to shine upon us. And we ask that you enable us to channel these blessings for the sake of your name among our neighbors and the nations. Use us to bring salvation to unsaved members of our families, unsaved friends and coworkers, and people we have yet to meet all over the triangle. In fact, if you could just stop for just a minute and let's personalize this before we go on to our final phrase here. Would you just take a minute and close your eyes and think about family members that need Jesus and would you just call their names out to God from your heart. Think about family members, children, your parents, a brother, a sister, somebody in your family and just call their name out. Now I want you to think about friends or coworkers or neighbors, somebody 
Maybe you're one, and I want you in your heart to call their name to God and say, God, use us to bring salvation to them. Now let's pray this last phrase here. We ask you this weekend to bless Summit members scattered around the world preaching the gospel and to raise up other Summit members to carry the gospel to those places where Jesus is least known. Why don't you bow your heads and let me close this. Father, we acknowledge, we acknowledge that we are your people and we are asking you to bless us. We know we don't deserve it, but God, we're asking you to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. God, not just for our sake, but for the sake of the nations. God, on this Independence Day weekend or as we celebrate Independence Day, God, we give you thanks for God, the blessings of freedom we experience in our country. And we do pray, God, for our leaders to be able to lead with equity and justice and righteousness. But Father, most of all, we pray that we as the church would would use those freedoms for the purpose for which you've given them to us. That we would leverage that blessing to, to divest ourselves of what you have given us, our privileges and our resources, so that Jesus' name will be known through all the earth. We pray, God, that you would use us to empower the poor and to set the captives free and to preach salvation to those, God, who sit in darkness. We ask for that, God. We ask for you to bless us, believing you want us. You want us to be blessed, to be your instrument of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people at all of our canvases said, amen, amen. All right, everybody, look at your neighbor real quick before you sit down. Put your hand on their shoulder. Look them right in the eye and say, this is awkward, okay? And sit down, all right, at all of our canvases. No matter how strong our faith is, we all have moments when we come to the end of ourselves. The problem is, if we're honest, we aren't sure if God can meet us in that place. Insecurity, doubt, rejection, and pain make us feel isolated and alone. But if we offer our desperation to God in prayer, we find him eager to listen, to forgive, to heal, to step in and help. Psalm 91, if you have your Bible, if you'll take it out and open it this weekend, we are in the last weekend of a series called Help, in which we are looking at prayers that um, almost all of us have prayed at some point in our lives, Um, whether you are a virtually spiritually mature person or whether you are not even sure you're a Christian, but you believe in God, um, these prayers, all five of these, I would suggest to you have come across your lips at some point. This week, I want to deal with the problem of unanswered prayer. I'm talking about those times that you've looked up toward heaven for help and you've wanted to say, God, are you even listening to me? God, how come I'm not getting my help? You know, if you're like me, sometimes you read these promises in the Bible about God's help and his protection and you wonder um, where they have been at various points in your life. You know, some people say that that we have a guardian angel, but you think, well, if we got a guardian angel, mine seems to have been asleep at the wheel at some very key moments in my life. In first grade, I remember I went to a Christian school and I remember my very godly teacher um, telling us a story um, about how she was um, driving up to an intersection and she said the, the, the red light turned green and then almost immediately she said it turned red. It, it was the craziest thing and I was kind of irritated because um, it hadn't given us any time to go through and I drove through this intersection all the time and it never did that. And so I, 
was mad. She said, but when I went through it, went up to the next um, intersection, I saw that just a, a couple moments ago, there'd been a big collision and, and, um, and, and, and God was protecting me from being a part of that collision. And he sent an angel down to make that red light do that. And, and, she, and she was very sincere and I mean, I believe her, but I remember as a first grader thinking like, well, what a, where was the angel for all those other people? Um, why didn't the angel step in and do something for them? Maybe you felt like Hey, where was God when I needed him to help me? I love God's promises of protection, but honestly, I'm not sure what to always do with them. I I do find myself gravitating toward them more and more now, particularly as I get older. Uh, When I was younger, I was amazed at how much older people seemed to worry. Uh, As a kid, I was just like, it was amazed. I lived with this general kind of carefree sense of peace. I always assumed that things would turn out well in the end. Uh, Now, um, as someone who is advancing in years, I see that as a rather stupid, um, uh, fragile piece. So many things in life, you know, just don't turn out like we've hoped. No relationship, no relationship is immune from stress, dysfunction, or fracture. No body is immune from disease or death. No organization, no organization is immune from corruption. Everything I love seems to live under the constant threat of destruction or death. Life is full of uncertainty and often tragedy. That reminds me of this, um, walking across this bridge over in Germany that I was there on a trip and um, there's this bridge 300 years old and it was built right after the, or right during the time of the bubonic plague um, that took place in part of Germany over there. And so they painted every 20 feet or so, they had these scenes etched into wood that just had normal life scenes in Germany, just being at a party or, or doing the laundry or something. And, and every one of the scenes, there was a skeleton that represented the plague or death that was somewhere in that. It was kind of like a macabre uh, uh, Where's Waldo where you tried to find the death and skeleton in this picture. But the message was supposed to be that at any point in life, at every turn, their death lurks and you never know when it will overtake you. To quote Shakespeare, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. Or in the words of that other great poet of Western civilization, Kendrick Lamar, no matter what I do, the evils of Lucy are always around me. Uh, Lucy being his metaphor for, um, for death and Satan, which is why I've always loved this song, because it's so overwhelming being a part of a world where there's so much trouble. I've memorized this song because it talks about God's promises of protection. Martin Luther, my favorite theologian, called this psalm the sparkling jewel of the entire Psalter. We don't know who wrote this psalm. It's one of the anonymous psalms. We don't know the occasion of its writing. All we know is that its promises have been loved by believers for nearly 3,000 years. Psalm 91, let me walk you through it and point out a few things and then try to give you some conclusions toward the end. Psalm 91, he who dwells, the psalmist says, in the shelter of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. What you should notice in these first couple verses is the images of closeness and intimacy that are communicated in this psalm. Shelter and shadow imply that you are right up next to God. You know, the word shadow does not appeal to us today as much as it would have in a hot, arid culture with no air conditioning. But in those days, getting into a shadow could make the difference between life and death. I mean, you bald-headed people know exactly what I'm talking about. It's still that way for you. Uh, Or I thought about it the other day when I was at one of my son's swim meets. Um, Y'all, I don't complain about much in life. I feel like I really don't. I feel like I'm generally a happy person. But for the love, can we not come up with a different way to do a swim meet? Right, my son was in five events, five events, which sounds like a lot. Um, the total amount of time that he swam was about four and a half minutes. The, the swim meet lasted five hours. 
And the entire rest of that five hours, I'm just sitting out in the sweltering sun for five hours. I mean, this is, uh, you know, my son, he seems to be having a good time because he gets in the water. Um, but the rest of us are just sitting there on the concrete. When I was a kid, we didn't have swim meets. We just swam and tried to drown each other for five hours. Um, I'm confident that Marco Polo taught me to swim faster and to avoid drowning better than any swim meet ever could, right? Survival to fittest. It's just how the world works. Um, but the point is, I sit out there for five hours now in the sun. And so I've learned to get there early, even though I'm at the swim meet for five and a half hours, I get there earlier because there's only three places of shade in the entire pool complex, and I want one of those. So to be in the shadow of God, to bring it back to the Bible now for a second, um, means that you are standing inside the protection of God and you are sheltered from everything that threatens you. I get the image here of a frightened child that is standing behind their parent. You've seen a two or three year old do this when they're not sure of what, what's happening. They go stand and they hold onto the leg and they look out from under, uh, look out from behind them, um, feeling safe from whatever threatens them. Notice the personal pronouns that the psalmist uses in verse two, my refuge, my fortress. You ever think about how audacious, how audacious it is to refer to God in a possessive sense? Honestly, I don't refer to many people in the possessive. David Thompson works here for me at the church. Um, Hank Murphy and I work together, one of our worship leaders. We've worked together for many years, and he's a very close friend. Both of them are. But if I started to refer to Hank as my Hank, that would just seem weird, right? It would. It would be weird. Now, I do use that possessive sense about my children. I will say my Karis, my Allie, my Raya, my Adit, and they say that about me. They say my daddy. That is the level of intimacy. That's the kind of intimacy that is implied there in verses 1 and 2, and it's amazing. Verse 3, for he will deliver you, he says, from the snare of the fowler. In other words, from those who are trying to entrap you and to hurt you. He will deliver you from the deadly pestilence. This means protection from disease or disaster. In other words, he's talking about protecting you from those who are intentionally trying to harm you, and he's talking about protecting you from random um, uh, random accidents. He will cover you with his, with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is like a shield and a buckler. By the way, I love this image. God will put us under his wings like a mother hen covering her young. Uh, I was reminded when I was reading this of that movie March of the Penguins. Have you, have you seen that? That tells the remarkable story of how penguins give birth to baby penguins and how they keep them alive and protect them. And basically, they have them at a certain time of year, and the, the, the husband, wife, the father, mother of the um, the, the, the egg, the, the future penguin, um, will take turns keeping it under the flap of skin as they um, stand out there in 80, uh, like 80 below degree weather with winds at 100 miles an hour. And they have to make a 70 mile trek to go find food. It takes three or four months. And so whichever spouse is not on that trek just stands there in a huddle of three or 400 other penguins while it's 80 below and while there are all these winds and they just keep that egg you know, uh, covered and keep it warm um, so that it can survive. Um, it is protecting it. It is shielding it from these elements. This is similar to what God is promising in Psalm 91. I will hide you underneath my wings, underneath my feathers so that nothing really threatens you. By the way, this image of God holding us under his wings is a feminine analogy for God. I point that out because the majority of metaphors for God in the Bible are masculine, but there is a tenderness about God and his care for us that is best reflected in a mother's love. Remember, God created, the Bible says, both male and female differently in his image. And that means that there are parts of his character that are more fully reflected in one gender than the other. 
Just like there are some parts of God that are reflected more often in the male, there are parts of God that are reflected more often in the female. That's why God made us different. And this is where God says, like the best kind of mother, um, this is the way God cares for his people. And because of this, the psalmist tells us, verse 5, you will not fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand. By the way, 10,000 being the highest number they recorded often in those days. For us, it would be like saying bazillions. Um, it just, everybody's falling around you, but it won't come near you. By the way, what, what do you think that experience is like? What's it like to be in a group of a thousand and everybody else falls except for you? What's it like to be in a group of 10,000 and everybody else around you dies, but you stay alive and healthy? Right, what would that be like? They would do studies on you and they would try to figure out what was special about you. The psalmist says when they study your life, what they're going to find out that your secret is the God whose shadow you stood within. Verse 9, it is because you made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. Look at this, look at this. No evil. No, how many, how much evil? No evil will befall you. No plague will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. At this point it's almost comical. You'll have an angel, he says, that will keep you from so much as stubbing your toe. Verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. You can walk on broken glass like that great scene in Die Hard. Remember that? Another great 80s movie because you're going to be tougher than Bruce Willis. Then verse 14, the Lord starts speaking. Up until now, you see the psalmist has been speaking and then there's a speaker change. The last couple of verses here, it's the Lord talking back to the psalmist. Verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love, God says, I will deliver him. By the way, this is not the typical Hebrew word for love. It's a word that means zeal, passion, or, or deep longing. One commentator said it's the difference between loving somebody and being in love with somebody. The Lord says, because I am this guy's refuge, because he's totally in love with me, because I'm his source, because I'm his hope, because I'm his shelter, I'm his home, I'm his protection, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. And so when he calls to me, I will answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I'll rescue him and I'll honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and I will show him my salvation. Now you can probably see why I love this psalm, right? But some of you had doubts spring up even while I was reading it. Don't try to deny it. I know what you're thinking because I think the same thing. It seems to be saying, doesn't it? If you trust God, nothing bad is going to happen to you. And everything in your life is going to go awesome. Even to the point I noted of comedy. If you love God, then he's going to send his angels to so closely guard you that you won't even stub your toe. And the opposite seems to be implied as well. If things are, are not going well, then it must be that you haven't made God your refuge. It must be that you're not really trusting him. Otherwise, you'd be protected from all these things. But, but most of us can talk about a time where bad things happen to us even when we were trusting in God. I don't know about you, but I've stubbed my toe a bunch of times at night. Where was my angel? See how using the bathroom or looking down, checking his phone, you know, texting while protecting or something, and he let me stub my toe? As far as I knew, I wasn't sinning at the moment when I stubbed my toe. I sinned after that moment, by the way, through some of the words that I said, but um, I didn't stub, you know, sinning before it. And then you got things in the Bible like the entire book of Job. All, all of these things that the psalmist promises won't happen, all of them happen to Job. And Job's friends basically counsel him 
with the reasoning of Psalm 91. Like, you know, Job, if you really trusted God, none of this stuff would really happen. And at the end of the book of Job, God calls, God calls Job's friends stupid and ignorant, and they're using the reasoning of Psalm 91 for saying the same thing the Psalm says. And while we're at it, didn't Jesus promise us that we would experience suffering and persecution? John 16, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to stub your toe. Sometimes you're going to get sick. Sometimes the lions are going to bite you. Here's the real kicker. Satan quotes this psalm, Psalm 91, during the temptation to try and derail Jesus. He says, hey, Jesus, you know, if you trust God, he's going to protect you. I mean, doesn't Psalm 91, he quotes Psalm 91. Doesn't Psalm 91 say that he will not even allow your, you to stub your toe? That means if you throw yourself off this cliff, then he will protect you because anybody that trusts God will be protected from all harm. And if God doesn't do it, he's not keeping his word. You see, Satan knows that if you take this psalm at face value or you just read it superficially, you're going to become confused, you're going to get deeply disappointed, and you're probably going to pull back from God, which is what many people have done. And it's the question that many of us have, where was God and why did all these things happen to me even when I was trusting him? So what do we do with this psalm? What do you do with this psalm? I don't know. Discuss it in your small groups. Let's pray. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. I wouldn't do that to you. All right, that's our question though. How do we experience the fulfillment of this psalm in our lives? You ready? Number one, we experience it in how God uses our pain to grow us in our knowledge of God, which is life itself. John 17, three, I'm gonna put a new test or a verse in the Bible with each of these points here. In John 17, Jesus declares this. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. The essence of eternal life is knowing God. And that means that any harm that comes to you that increases your knowledge of and trust in God is an increase in your capacity of life. And that means that anything that leads you to that is not really harm, it is help in the bigger picture. The psalmist himself in Psalm 91 alludes to this. Did you notice in verse 15 when we were reading something sort of slipped in there when he said this? Verse 15. He says, I will, God says to the psalmist, I will be with him in trouble. It doesn't say I'll never be in trouble. This is a clue in the psalm that godly people are sometimes going to experience trouble. And the psalmist is anticipating that the fulfillment of this psalm for many of us will not always be literal, at least initially. Sometimes when we stub our toe or get smitten by the pestilence, we come to know God more. And that is better than simply avoiding pain. Rather than keeping us from the flame, Jesus walks with us through the flame, and the knowledge of him that we develop in the flame is better and more life-giving than mere avoidance of the flame. In Luke 21, Jesus alludes to the ideas in Psalm 91. Uh, he, he references you know, some of the ideas in Psalm 91, and here's what he says. Um, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Watch this. And some of, them, some of you they will put to death. Some of you they are going to put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Verse 18. But not, watch this. Not a hair of your head is going to perish. Now, do you see the contradiction? Some of you, they're going to put to death. But not a hair of your head is going to perish. You're like, well, I mean, if I perish, then the hairs on my head perish. So... How is it that I could perish, but not the hair of my head? It seems like he's contradicting himself, but look what he says next. You see, it's by your endurance, you will actually gain your lives. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. See what he's getting at? There's a kind of life that is 
deeper and better than merely avoiding pain. One of the best um, illustrations I've seen of this um, about how God uses this, you you ever heard, um, you remember, I think we've done it here at this church um, before, actually a few times, they call them cardboard testimonies. You know what I'm talking about? Um, Basically, you have a series of people walk up on stage here, and they have a, a, a cardboard, you know, about this big, and on one side of it, it will describe very shortly their life before Christ, and then on the back side, when they flip it over, they'll describe their life after meeting Christ. My best one of those I've ever seen, um, you had all these people come up and it'll just talk about the difference that Jesus made. Within well, these um, two people in their probably late 40s, early 50s walk up. At first you think they're husband and wife, um, but uh, the woman, there's a, there's a woman and a man, and the woman says on hers says diagnosed with a very aggressive stage four breast cancer. That's hers. Then the guy holds his up and it says, I was the doctor who diagnosed her and then it says something like um, uh, agnostic and antagonistic um, toward the faith. Then he flips his over and says, through her patience and joyful hope in the midst of this ordeal, I came to faith in Christ. Then she flips hers over and it just says, worth it, worth it. It was worth me going through all this for me to come to know God better and for him to come to know God better as well. That's Psalm 91. And it is the testimony of every person with whom God has used pain to deepen their knowledge of God. You see in verse 16, now you can put up verse 16. In verse 16, when God says, with long life, I will satisfy him. With long life, I will show him my salvation. He's not simply talking about adding pain-free years to our lives. He's talking about adding despair-free life to our years. That's the better version of eternal life. There's a great New Testament verse that says all this that many Christians know. Uh, they know the first part of the verse, but they don't know the, the next verse, the really important part. Romans 8, 28 is the part everybody knows, and we know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things are working together for good. That's the part people know. This next part is the part that they struggle with, where they don't know. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good purpose. That's the good purpose that God has promised he will work all things together for. Well, what is the good purpose that God is accomplishing in your life? He's conforming you to the image of his son, which means knowing God more. God's goal of Christ's likeness is his greatest goal for you. And that is, as Jesus himself explained, that is eternal life itself. This is eternal life for you to know God. So I'm going to work all things in your life out for you to have real life that is communicated in poetic images throughout Psalm 91, which leads me to number two. We experience the fulfillment of this Psalm, number two, in God's promise to use all things for good in our lives. Let me me teach you a very important Bible interpretation principle. Bible passages should never be interpreted in isolation. You interpret certain Bible passages in light of the rest of what the Bible says. In fact, this is where a lot of false doctrine gets, is, is you take one verse and you ignore all the other verses that um, that, that, that will help you understand that one. This is what Satan tried to do with Psalm 91. He interprets it without knowledge of the rest of the scriptures. You got to read this passage through the lens of the rest of the Old and New Testaments like I've showed you. Nevertheless, listen, this passage is still true. Verses like Romans 8:28 show you how the promises in Psalm 91 are true. Romans 8:28 promises us that God is working all things together for good. Work together for good does not mean that bad things are really good things in disguise. It means that God takes genuinely bad things and he brings his power to bear in them 
so that you will be better off for them having happened. It means that from the vantage point of eternity, you're going to be able to see how God exercised his power and grace in such a perfect way that all the evil that happened will in the end only lead to greater glory for God and greater joy for us. That is the ultimate defeat of evil. All evil deeds ultimately accomplish the reverse of what their authors intended. We see little glimpses of this all throughout the Bible. In the book of Acts, we see that all of Satan's attacks on the church lead instead to the spread of the gospel. We see it, of course, most clearly in the, in the cross because that is where Satan and evil people, us, we did our worst to destroy Jesus and God turned even that worst act of evil into our salvation. God turned the worst thing that ever happened on earth, he turned that very thing into the means of our salvation. And believer, you can rest assured that God is doing the same thing with your pain. That's what the cross shows you. I've told you before that my guess is that already, if you have any experience in life, if you're older than 20 years old, already you can see some of the good things behind some of the bad things that happen in your life and you see how God used them for good. Uh, a couple of months ago, I used this quote from a British journalist named Malcolm Muggeridge. Uh, Malcolm Muggeridge said, said this, contrary to what I would have expected, I look back now on experiences that at the time seemed especially devastating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything of value that I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has come through affliction, not through comfort and ease. Some of you can see that already in your life, can't you? You can see how God was using the unanswered prayer, the season of difficulty. You can see how he was doing something good in the pain. So here's the thing, if already, with just a limited vantage point of time, if already you can look back and see a good purpose for some of the suffering in your life, don't you think given infinite time and perspective, you're going to see the reason for all of it. The testimony of countless believers throughout history has been that stubbed toes and, and serpents and pestilences can be where God does some of his best life-giving work in you and in other people. And like we said in the first point, the greatest thing he does is give you this knowledge of himself. Uh, I love this quote by Martin Luther, to quote him again, uh, Martin Luther, the, the, the reformer. And he said that as soon as God chooses you to be his child, he lets the devil afflict you to turn you into a real doctor, a real, understand, a real professor of the word. Luther said, I credit the devil, the pope, and all my other persecutors with my deep knowledge of the word. Through the devil's raging, they've turned me into a fairly good preacher because they drove me to, into the gospel to depths I never would have reached without their afflictions. It means that God is always in these things giving you genuine life. With long life, I will satisfy him, which is real genuine life that comes from the knowledge of God. It reminds me of the story I've told you before. I love to tell about the little bird that's flying south for the winter. You know, the little bird gets a late start. He slept late that day and so all of his friends left him because he got a late start. He, he got caught in a snowstorm by himself. So as he's trying to make his way through the stone sword, um, it, it was so bad that ice formed on his wings and he, he crash landed. And he thought, here I am, my, my wings are frozen and, and I'm going to die. Well, along comes a cow and a cow drops manure on him. And he thinks, well, this just went from bad to worse. I mean, my, my wings were frozen and now I got a cow that just dropped manure on me. But then he realizes the manure was warm and it thawed his wings and he was going to be able to fly again. So he shook the manure off and he flapped his wings and he started to chirp and, and, uh, and, and sing. And he got so excited as he uh, was singing that he got the attention of a cat who came along and ate him. 
And I told you that you can learn three lessons about your life from this story. Lesson number one, not everybody who drops manure on you is your enemy, right? Lesson number two, not everyone who digs you out is your friend. Lesson number three, when you're in manure, sometimes it's helpful for you just to keep your little chirper shut and just wait it out because God might be up to something awesome, okay? And that's what the psalmist is believing in Psalm 91. All right, so we experience the fulfillment of this psalm, first of all, and how God uses our pain to grow us in the knowledge of God. Secondly, in his promise to use all things for good in our lives. Thirdly, we experience the fulfillment of this psalm. Number three, in the resurrection. In the resurrection itself. As Christians, we recognize that this life is really just a prelude to an eternal life, a life in which, Revelation says, Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for all the former things have passed away. We are going to a place where the worst pain we go through is going to seem like some brief birth pain that is swallowed up in the joy of new birth. This psalm is ultimately literally fulfilled in that resurrection that we look forward to, a place where there are no more stubbed toes and no death by pestilences which is what makes one feature of this psalm absolutely amazing. And that is the analogy of God protecting us under his wings like some kind of mother hen, because it shows us how committed God was to protecting us from all harm. Because we know that on the cross, God literally covered us and shielded us so that the harmful elements that we have brought on ourselves ultimately would not destroy us. I heard once about a major fire that hit Yellowstone National Park. After the fire, it left all these charred remains there of the, of the part of the forest. These two firemen were walking through the destruction and they noticed on a tree stump, a rather macabre site, there was a charred bird, a charred bird sitting completely upright as if nothing had happened. One of the men knocked the bird over and underneath this rather large bird were these three little chicks. This mother bird had protected her babies from the fire by taking the fire in their place and shielding them from it so that they would not be destroyed by it. This is what God did on the cross. He fulfilled this psalm in a way that probably the psalmist would never even have been able to explain. He shielded us. He put us under his wings and he took all those harmful elements in our place, which guarantees us that he is now working all things together for good and that ultimately this whole story is going to end for us in glorious resurrection, just like Jesus' story ended that way. And that's the logic of Romans 8 is that if God didn't spare his son for you when you were his enemy, of course he's going to work in the pain in your life to bring it about for good. He wouldn't have done the first thing if he wasn't also going to do the second thing. Jesus' resurrection is the promise of what is to come for us, a resurrection in which every phrase of Psalm 91 is going to be literally true in your life. And that promise is supposed to redefine how you see everything on earth. Because when you believe that, it'll change the way that pain feels here. It doesn't mean it's not painful. It just means that when you grieve, you still grieve with hope. Remember that movie, um, The Sixth Sense? Yes, by the way, this is the second reference to Bruce Willis, who behind Nicolas Cage is the most underrated, underappreciated actor of our generation. Well, the thing about that movie is that you can never watch it the same way twice. Right? If somebody didn't spoil it for you to begin with, you were totally like blown away at the end when you were like, well, by the way, spoiler alert, I'm about to ruin it for you. So if you haven't seen the movie and you want to go watch it, just close your ears for the next 30 seconds, okay? And so when you get to the end, you find out he's dead. He's been dead the whole time. You're like, whoa. It, now try to go back and watch the movie a second time. And I'm telling you, it's totally ruined. Everything is different when you know that he's been dead from the beginning. You can't see the beginning the same when you know the ending. 
That's how we are to go through life. Because we see from the beginning that Satan and all his powers are actually dead. And Jesus is alive. And they're harmless. And he's victorious. And what that shows me is that in whatever I go through, nothing can separate me from God's plan for my life. And that means that even in the worst moments of life, I can walk on broken glass and die hard. See what I did there? Okay. All right. All right. But there's one more way that we experience the fulfillment of the psalm in our lives. We experience it lastly, number four, in moments of deliverance. Moments of deliverance. It is true. Listen, it's very important. It's true that the primary and ultimate fulfillment of this psalm is experienced in the previous three things that I've given you. Increasing your knowledge of God and how all things work together for good and according to God's plan and in the resurrection. It's true. But I don't want to overlook the fact that God sometimes gives us manifestations of this deliverance in our day-to-day lives right now. Here's how I know this, okay? King David prayed in Psalm 27, 13, after talking about the goodness of God and all these same things, I love the last verse of Psalm 27. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, it's not just a sweet by and by where I'm gonna talk about the goodness of God. I wanna see it now. In fact, he would go on in Psalm 30, just a couple Psalms later, he would go on to say, can the dead praise you, God? Can dead men proclaim your faithfulness? No, not on earth they can't. I wanna praise you now. I wanna be a testimony to my generation of the strength of your right hand. So let me experience your mighty deliverance now so I can tell everybody about it. Because once I go to the grave, I can't tell them about it. So let me experience now so I can put you on display. The apostle Paul experienced moments of this kind of deliverance and he uses language to describe them that are reminiscent of Psalm 91. I would suggest to you that he probably was thinking of Psalm 91 because he borrows language from it. He says, 2 Timothy 4, 17 and 18, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. There it is. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work, all of them, and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Right? I I know that I experienced the goodness of God. Almost every person I know on the front lines of ministry has stories about how God has supernaturally protected them in amazing ways, ways that often sound like Psalm 91. Let me share one with you from a man that is very important to our church. Not all of you will know who he is, but uh, as a man that is deeply revered here, his name is Sam James. Sam James is the founder of our church. He founded it in 1962 um, when he was waylaid on his way to the mission field. His son had a, um, a heart defect. His son was one year old, so they had to come here to Duke Medical Center. And while they spent a year here um, not knowing what else to do, he planted a church. And that church is the one you're sitting in right now. Um, and so he works with this core group for nine months. He preaches one sermon at this church on its launch day. And then he got on a plane that afternoon and went to Vietnam where he was a missionary for the next 40 years. Think about that for a minute. A missionary in Vietnam in the 60s. Um, this is what he chose to do. Well, while he was there, he said, I tried as much as possible. This is in his book, Servant on the Edge of History, which I would highly commend for you for your summer reading. But he said, while I was there, I tried to stay mostly in Saigon because that was where most of the pro-American um, or people that were friendly to us was. And that's where I did most of my work. But he says, um, on occasion, I would get messages from people that were up north uh, about things that God was beginning to do there. And he said, one particular one, I kept getting this message from this um, lady, and he gives her name, uh, who wanted me to come up to to this region because there was a lot of people there that were interested in the gospel. But that would be very dangerous because the communists were terrorizing that area. He said, but as I prayed about the matter, I just got the sense that God wanted me to go. So on Christmas Day of 1965, I called the local police and, and, and they said that they hadn't had any reports of communist activity for several weeks in this area. 
Their only advice to me was make sure you travel during daylight hours. Before starting out for this trip, he said, I got up early in the morning, about 4 a.m. so I could do most of my driving. Um, early in the morning, I got up and I did what I always do. I read the Bible and the, the psalm for that morning um, that I was supposed to read was Psalm 91. So I read Psalm 91, got in my car and started to drive. He said, I drove for several hours out to the Vietnamese countryside. He said, I just had this feeling of peace and safety as I just passed rice paddy after rice paddy. He said, I got within two kilometers, two miles of the village when I came around a curve, and he said I was horrified to see a roadblock that had just been set up. He said what, what, about half the road was covered in this big dirt pile that was probably 15 feet high. Uh, and on the other side of it were a bunch of soldiers in vans and dressed in camouflage. He said I immediately recognized as a communist um, the Viet Cong that had set up this roadblock because that was the way they did it. He said what they would always do is they would get a, a group of cars stopped. They would force everyone out of their cars. They would preach communism to them. And then they would rob them of all their valuables. He said often the soldiers would shoot those that they didn't like, people they thought that would be a problem. He said almost routinely um, Americans would be executed. He said, so this wave of fear swept over me. He said, my body began trembling, trembling almost uncontrollably. He said, my foot was shaking so badly that I couldn't keep it on the brake pedal. He said, I was chastising myself because I was thinking about my wife and my kids um, back home. And I said, I never should have made this trip. He said, I've never felt as much fear as I, I, I felt at that moment. Um, he said, so I was looking at this, I could make out all these, these camouflaged communist troops scattered in the brush. So I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw that a four or five cars had pulled up after me. I knew there was no way out and that the soldiers were going to make their move at any minute. He said, suddenly Psalm 91 came back to my mind. He said, and I remember the first verse that I read, he who dwells in the secret place of the most high will abide under the shadow of the almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare. You shall not be afraid. He said, I realized that my terrible panic was the result of not really trusting God's perfect will. He said, I know that God guides my life down to the details and that absolute surrender combined with absolute faith brings absolute peace. He said, and suddenly sitting there in that car, my whole body went relaxed and this incredible peace settled over me. He said, I looked to my right at that moment and I saw no movement among the soldiers hidden in the bushes. So, and then I looked to my left and I saw this little path this little path that the farmers used to drive water buffalo to and from work in the fields. He said, so with all these soldiers over here, I just slowly turned my wheels to the left in the direction of the path and I slipped my car into its lowest gear. He said, I began to work my way down this path. He says, I was expecting at any minute to hear the, the rattle of machine gun fire and to see my back window um, open up. He said, but it never came. He said, no other cars moved, nobody following me. He said, I got to this pathway where it went around the field and I hit the gas pedal. I veered into this thick banana grove well past the roadblock. He said, I went all the way around to the other side of the roadblock, came back out and going into the village. He said, I stopped the car when I got into the village. I felt so weak. He said, I could only rest my face on the steering wheel and thank God for his deliverance. He said, I went over to this place where I was supposed to speak that day to these people that were gathered. He says, and at the moment I stood up, he said, there was a series of really heavy explosions that shook the ground, followed by gunfire and then the, the um, exploding of grenades. He said, I looked back over and where uh, this roadblock was, all this thick black smoke was towering into the sky. He said, I expected that they were going to cancel the event. He says, but in the midst of all these um, explosions that were shaking the ground, he said, everybody just sat there waiting on me to speak. And uh, they wanted me to just, they were just oblivious to the violence. He said, so I began to preach 
And he said, he said numbers of students, large numbers of students expressed an interest in following Christ. He says, when the service was over and the clouds of smoke had cleared, the gunfire had stopped. He said, the communists were gone. Some of the older students offered to escort me back past the roadblock. He said, when we got there, we learned that what had happened is a contingent of South Vietnamese soldiers had come op- there and opened fire on the Viet Cong. The two sides had engaged in a battle, and the cars and the people that were there were caught in the crossfire. He said, there were bodies strewn all over the road. The first three cars, remember his had been second, had been burned and destroyed and their occupants killed. He said, it's ironic that Psalm 91, Psalm 91 gave me the calmness that settled my nerves to think about what I should do. God used my faith in his providential will to be the gateway that helped me see that there was a way out of this and to open me a path of escape. Now, I share that, but I do not want to imply to you that every time, does that mean God will every time enable you to avoid the explosion of the Viet Cong? No. But it does mean that you are, listen, indestructible until your work is done. And it means you can walk into the roadblock with a sense of peace because I know that they cannot harm me and they cannot stop me because when God wants to do it, I am immortal until my work on earth is done. And sometimes I'm going to see manifestations of that because God likes to show it to you so you can tell other people about it. But regardless, you can live with the assurance that God is going to work all things out perfectly in your life for his good plan, y'all, just like he said. You know, one of my favorite all-time books is called Shadow of the Almighty. Um, it's a book whose title comes from Psalm 91. It's the journals of Jim Elliott, who was another missionary, um, who was one of the five missionaries that was slain on the beaches of Ecuador in the 1950s. The book was published by his wife later, Elizabeth Elliott, uh, many years later. Shadow of the Almighty. The title is ironic. The title is ironic because the way that Jim Elliott died was having his heart thrust through with a spear which if you remember was one of the very things that Psalm 91 promised wouldn't happen. Elizabeth called the book Shadow of the Almighty because she was utterly convinced, she said, that the refuge of the people of God is not a refuge from suffering and death, but it's a refuge through suffering and death and a refuge from final and ultimate defeat. In this book, she quotes Jim Elliot, which I actually said earlier with a quote, I am immortal, Jim Elliot used to say, until my work on earth is done. The same is true of you. You are immortal until your work on earth is finished. There might be some painful chapters along the way. Listen, if you hold on, you're gonna see that God was working all of it together for good, just like he promised. Some of these chapters may indeed be very painful. But to pick up the uh, Jim Elliott story later, a few months ago, I told you I was listening to to a talk by a guy named Steve Saint who was the son of Nate Saint, who was one of the other five missionaries that was murdered um, there with Jim Elliott in the 1950s. And Steve Saint was just a young boy, very young boy, one or two years old when his father was was killed. And I told you one of the most remarkable stories of grace that I've ever heard. He talked about how um, he was in early teenage years that he and um, his mom and the other four widows uh, whose husbands had been killed went back into that very place where these people had murdered their husbands and they took up residence among them, and they led them to faith in Christ. A lot, he said, and, and, and this is the amazing part, um, he said, I had the privilege to lead to Christ and baptized Min Kai Yi, who was the man who killed my father, and we adopted him into our family as my kid's surrogate grandfather to replace the man that he had murdered all those years ago. In the talk, as he is describing all this, he makes this statement. He says, why is it, why is it that we insist that every chapter and our lives has to be good. When God promises only that in the last chapter, he's gonna make all the other chapters make sense. 
I realize you might be in the midst of this situation, but don't you see from Psalm 91 that in eternity, God is going to do all of this with your story. And you'll be able to, from the perspective of eternity, look back and say, that angel kept me from even so much as stubbing my toe. Yeah, I may have actually stubbed my toe, but spiritually, in the, in the big scheme of things, not one accidental thing happened, and God overturned it all for good, just like he said. So I want you to take Psalm 91, and I want you to memorize it, and I want you to read it, and I want you to quote it when you're afraid, and I want you to quote that psalm in its greatest expression, which is nothing can separate you from the love of God, and not one accidental thing will ever happen, that all the promises of God are yes, and you will march in triumph and victory for all the days of your life from now and forever. That's the promise of Psalm 91. Why don't you bow your heads if you would. Amen. Amen. Bow your heads at all of our campuses. Listen to this, Jesus quotes Psalm 91 one other time in the New Testament. So when he was looking at Israel, at Jerusalem, and he shook his head with tears in his eyes, it says. He said, Jerusalem, how many times? I wanted to gather you to myself like a hen gathers her chickens, but you wouldn't do it. It means that this protection that God wants to give you, this covenant love is something you gotta choose to receive. It's the gift of grace we call the gospel. He wants to be this in your life. He wants to be your shelter, your friend, your protector, but you have got to choose it for yourself. If you've never done that, you can do that today, right now. It's simply found through repentance and faith. Repentance means surrendering control of your life to him unconditionally, absolutely, with nothing held back. Absolute surrender. It means you receiving his offer of covenant love that was purchased for you by Christ. You can do that in this very moment and Jesus will save you and your whole life will, will be changed from this point forward. I know that many of you are believers and so this is that moment just to think about the goodness of God and to rest in it. Father, we pray, give us eyes to see and to feel and to sense the protection that you offer us in Jesus, we pray in Christ's name, amen.